This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, our podcast series that zooms in on all those little things we can do in our university classrooms. The little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb and I'm joined, as always, you're familiar, by my friend and colleague, Al, an affectionado for all things teaching and a connoisseur for all things whiskey. <laughs> Thanks, Seb. We should do a podcast on whiskey one day. That would be good fun. Hi, everybody. The series is motivated by our belief that what matters to the student experience is what matters in the classroom. In our universities, we talk a lot about teaching, but we talk about course design, teaching policy and budgets. And often what gets left behind are little examples, small examples of great practice that can have a big impact in our classrooms. And so in our podcast series, we want to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers who do particular practices in the classroom that have worked and that we hope will entice you to perhaps try them out in your own courses. And we try to have these conversations in a buzzword-free way. And when we hear buzzwords that we think are more better at home in our teaching committees, we have what Seb calls the democratic buzzer. N-O. So, we want to have a buzzword-free conversation and talk about these examples in everyday terms. And today, we're staying on home turf. We're staying right here at UQ, but we're going outside our faculty, which is always exciting. And so in today's podcast, we are talking about scrapping exams and assessing students through real-world problems. To do that, we are being joined by Lydia Kavanagh, who is a professor in the School of Mechanical and Mining Engineering here at UQ. Lydia, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Always exciting when we get to talk outside of our faculty. One of the wonderful things about your courses, Lydia, is that you've taken a decision to move away from the classic exam. Why did you take that decision and, and what have you focused on uh, as a substitute? The reason that I, I took it out was my own experience with exams. And so when I came to university, the first 10 minutes of the exam was remembering all of the equations and putting them down on the sheet of paper. And then it was remembering some of the constants and then it was remembering processes. And if you'd asked me to be able to regurgitate what I did in that exam two weeks down the track, I couldn't have. You know, two months down the track, Absolutely not. And the next semester when the lecturer expected me to remember everything, no way. It was, it was just not there. Then when you get out into practice, so I was a consulting engineer for a, a number of years after I graduated. What happens when you go out to site and you're talking to somebody on site? You, there are concepts that you need to remember. So you do need to know, you know, the processes of removing nitrogen from wastewater. Uh, that's something absolutely you must know. And you must be able to do what we call back of the fag packet calculations. Mm. But again, it's concepts. And then I come back to the office and I've got an array of books in front of me. And do I have to remember the equation for, uh, you know, designing an activated sludge system? No, I don't. I pull down the, uh, the textbook off the shelf. I look at the uh, equation there and I apply it. But I'm using my engineering knowledge to be able to design that activated sludge tank. 
And so then I'm looking at what I'm asking students to do and is it something that they will experience out in industry? And am I preparing them for working out in industry with an exam? And the answer is no, I'm not. So then the answer became, what could I do in my courses that would prepare them for working in industry? And an exam was not that. Mm. So you're really trying to encourage problem solving rather than memory. Yes, absolutely. Being able to draw on the concepts, so demonstrate fundamental understanding and then look at application. And that's really important as an engineer. Mm. All right. So application you just mentioned here. Um, give us um, maybe one example of uh, what your students then are doing instead of writing an exam. All right, well, let's have a look at the big first-year course where there's a thousand students and they come in and they don't really know much about engineering, but I want to treat them as adults. So I want them to be student engineers and not engineering students. Mm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them an open-ended problem, something that I haven't solved. Uh, so, for example, um, let's talk about the year that the MH... 370 went down and went missing. The Malaysian airline. The Malaysian airline, thank you. Now, what if we could get our students to think about designing a system that would locate MH370 and the black box on it? So their problem was somewhere in this gigantic ocean, there's an airline and you need to find it. You can't do that using manpower, so I want you to design some drones actually water vessels, water drones, if you like, to be able to locate that. Now, what do they have to do? They have to think about movement. That's mechanical engineering. They have to think about uh, sensors. So we've now started to get some electrical in there, and then those sensors have to be connected. We need power, uh, and we need some programming. So now we're bringing in mechatronic engineering, and we're bringing in software engineering, and we're starting to see that it's a team. And out there in the real world, our students will work as teams. But I haven't actually got the end product for them, so they can go any way they want to. And so some of the vehicles we saw floated on the water and some moved underneath the water, uh, and lots of them had different ways of actually detecting where that black box was. That means they're actually building these devices, and then at the end of the course they all come together and every, every team introduces and tries to find a black box that you, in a way offer like what in a swimming pool that's right that's right so we have a large pool of water and we put a couple of black boxes in there um, we painted them orange and we made them magnetic so the students had a choice about whether they were looking for a color or whether they were looking for magnetism and they put their drones in the water and they get five minutes to try and find that uh, and once they've found it they then have to send a signal back to a computer to say this is where I'm sitting in terms of a GIS wow I've never said this sentence before, but I want to be an engineer. <laughs> yeah, oh, my job here is done. <laughs> that is amazing. The one thing that struck me, though, apart from that amazing experience that the students would have is the first sentence that started you off, a thousand students. Yes. So a thousand students are going through this process individually or do they work in groups or how does it work? Well, I put them in teams mm. and again that is authentic. It's very rare out there in industry that you will be working on something by yourself 
And it's very rare that you'll be working with engineers who are exactly the same discipline as you. So in this case, we needed mechatronic and electrical and mechanical uh, engineers all working together. So it's very important that I offer up something that is multidisciplinary and that does allow them to, uh, you know, change, exchange information and work together. We had a chat earlier over, you know, various things that you do. And in, in that context, you had mentioned that you actually spend a lot of time and effort and thinking into designing and putting together those different teams. Can you talk us through that? Yes. So when I first started out and I was doing some second year courses in chemical engineering, and again, we were putting them in teams, the teams were failing. And it wasn't because they hadn't engaged with content. It was because um, and and they hadn't managed. It was because they hadn't managed to produce the submission in the end. And when I looked at why they were failing, it was all because the team wasn't working for them, and we weren't looking at that team and we weren't giving them any support. We were just saying here group of strangers. Let's put A to B in this team and then C to D in the next team. Off you go give us a bright shiny submission at the end of the you know the end of semester so I did quite a little quite a bit of research into that and had a look at why they were failing and found that the reasons were leaderless teams number one so that's one where you would come to the weekly meeting and you would say what have you done and they'd all look over their shoulder and just you know you're not talking to me are you <laughs> and then there were ones about uh, conflict We had students within teams who would have conflict and that would override everything. So we needed to put some things in place to mentor them and a place for them to be able to report that safely so we could come in and help them. We also found that um, sometimes if you allowed the teams to be free formed, we'd have a lot of our international students working together. English is not their first language and so they would have difficulty interpreting the script Uh, they wouldn't look outside their team. They didn't know where to go. They weren't integrating. Uh, they weren't forming support groups and, and domestic students sort of avenues of, of help and support. So what I started to do was to look at putting a leader in each team. And I use a very quick online tool which talks about the various team roles within you know, working within a team and found which ones were leaders. And I made sure that each team had at least somebody who would say, yeah, the buck stops with me. And then I looked at the international students and I spread those out across the teams as well. And also, as you know, in engineering, we don't have very many women. Got a lovely program up and going now, Women in Engineering, and we've pushed it up from something around 15% to something around 24%. But it also means that I need to be careful with where the females are going. And I've found over the years that there needs to be uh, at least two females in a team or none. Because sometimes, and I'm sorry, this is all part of the education process, isn't it? Some 17, 18-year-old males uh, do not yet understand that females are a valuable part of the team. Mm. So never a single female in a team. Mm. But yes, uh, Seb, some real considered thinking up front about how we construct the teams. For a thousand students, I mean, and teams of, what, six or seven students, that's pretty amazing. Elf. It's amazing preparation. I'm really interested to know... I keep thinking about this water drone in the swimming pool. What success or failure look like? You mentioned uh, team building skills. You mentioned a submission. 
obviously not everyone's going to build a drone that can find the black box. So that can't be the, the metric. Is it about the process that they go through? Is that how you're evaluating them? So on, on demo day, and these demo days are an event, so the students all turn up and they've all got their drones. Uh, we do have four different proce- projects, so we do cater for other disciplines. I should mention that there. Uh, but the students who are doing Mechalec and software and mechatronics turn up with their drones. It's uh, And we have a stations, a number of stations to assess what they've done. So the first thing, they'll come up and they'll do basic checks. Does the battery work? Does the coding work? Do your lights and flashing bells and whistles work and there'll be a set amount of marks for those and then we'll move on to the next one does it weigh right you know is it the right size have you built it within the specs that we've given you and there'll be some marks for those and then and only then do we get to put it in the the pool (laughs) and let it go Uh, and yes there are marks for finding the black boxes of course Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them when they go in they just immediately upend but that's not because we haven't worked with them all semester. Uh, you know, we do have milestones along the way. It is a first-year course, so there is a lot of scaffolding in place, and we do sort of help them along the way. By week nine, you should have this, mm. for example. But it does feel like, I mean, all the wonderful work that you're doing outside of the assessment, it feels like the students will be learning and getting more than just the drone at the end of it. They're, they're getting to know leadership they're getting to know interpersonal skills there's a whole lot of other benefits from the process that you've designed you're quite right and again it comes back to that authenticity of our assessment and are we setting them up for working in industry teamwork is a large part of it there are peer assessment factors there are mentor meetings so we are feeding back along the process how they're doing in teams it's hard conversation it's a very hard conversation to have once somebody and say Lydia you're not pulling your weight the team has has said you know we have a peer assessment factor that you're not pulling your weight now let's talk about what the team expects from you and what you're going to give to the team so that's the real world it I is mean, the real that's world. That's what happens, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. is. And, and because we talk about the real world, and your first example was already so wonderful, I just would love to hear another one. There's something about water purification engineers without borders, right? That's right. So um, engineers without borders are a wonderful organization. Fast fact, they started here at the University of Queensland. Mm. So a number of years ago, a legend has it, a mechanical engineer was sitting in his fourth year course and was designing a, a weapon of mass destruction. And he said, that's not what I'm all about. And so he started up Engineers Without Borders, which is a humanitarian organization and works around the world. Mm. Now, every year they pick a particular context, and it could be treatment of grey water for an orphanage in India. It could be uh, introduction of a sanitation system in Tongle Sap in East Timor. Uh, It could be on country and thinking about how we help some of our, uh, you know, more arid country places and so our students then have to design a water purification system or a grey water treatment system or a a system for um, you know collection of water rainwater and stuff like that 
and our students, they always blow my socks off. Over the years, I've had a lot of feedback from when I present these ideas from more established sort of professors who say first years can't do anything. I totally disagree. These guys can do anything. And so they will um, demonstrate on on demonstration day. They will have we have one of our cricket ovals mm. and they take their systems out there and sometimes they have little evaporation pans uh, and sometimes they have a little distillation parts or columns with activated carbon. Sometimes they've grown reed beds and things like that. Uh, the year we worked in Timor-Leste, uh, one group blew me away. They'd actually designed and had printed a book in French which showed how you would use this new system for children. So it was a children's book. It was just absolutely amazing. Wow. And you must be quite proud when you see that. Always. I'm (laughs) always proud of first years. Yeah. I'd like to see that oval. It would be amazing (laughs) to walk by. Please invite us next time. (laughs) You just mentioned uh, colleagues who might have the attitude to say, well, first year Uh, students in that area can't be treated in this particular way. Do you see this reflected in students as well who come into your course, who might be first-year students, who might look at this and think, oh, I thought I'm going to be just sitting in a lecture theater first and going to be you know, taught all these things. Instead, you're throwing me into the cold water, literally speaking. So one of my jobs is to empower them. And so they get a lot of encouragement from me. And I always tell them straight up, you guys are fantastic. You blow my socks off every year and you will do it again this year. And then what I have is I have a teaching team of about 70. And uh, a lot of those are undergraduates. Yes, that's got its own problems, Seb. I have to have <laughs> I have to have weekly meetings with them as well so that we're all on the same page. But a lot of them are alumni from, you know, the course the last time we ran it. Uh, and so they come along and say, Lydia's right. You can do it. I did it. Here are the stumbling blocks I had, but I'm here to help you. And yes, tutors helped me get through it. So we have that support system and we're very positive and we make it fun as well. So we don't do many lectures. We use the large UQ Centre for people who are not at UQ that holds 600 students at a time and they sit at round tables and we have nine students at a round table and we have a very active workshop there and again it's an event and they come along and the noise is fantastic when it needs to be and when it doesn't need to be they're attentive and they're listening uh, and working through things but again it's about that collaborative learning and that's a theme we always find with first year courses that the idea of empowerment is is so important isn't it to to really give students that belief in themselves right from the start of their university experience and if you don't do that you can lose them absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely that that's one of the jobs of first year is to actually make sure that first the students want to be engineers because a lot of them don't know what engineering is about. It's just you're good at physics and maths, Al, so let's make you an engineer. I wish. (laughs) But the other thing is to transition them into university and to empower them and to let them know they're adults and they're in charge of their own learning. This is amazing. And it's fascinating to listen to, I always love listening to colleagues who are also completely outside my own field. 
if people are listening in here and they might not be in your field, but they feel that the spirit or the thought that you put into the design and into these processes could be something they're like, what would be the advice that you would give them if they wanted to take something, even if they're not in the same discipline as you? Have a look at what their students will do when they graduate. Go out there, get into industry and look at what your students are doing and then set up a system so that they can uh, replicate that uh, with the safety net around them, obviously, uh, within your courses. Give them a, a chance to practice before you make it real and assess it. But that's what I would recommend doing. I think that's a wonderful note to Uh, come to an end here like really great uh, point that I think I can take away if you are listening in here and you want to come back to us you want to contact Lydia you can find us on Facebook on Twitter and on Instagram and if you built a water drone or any type of drone please send them to me and Seb so that we can have fun too thanks for joining us on High Red Heroes and we look forward to your company again Mm -hmm.